0: Earl Grey for Jeremy?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's me over here. Thank you so much. All right. So today, on this episode of Elul's Cafe, I have my friend Jonah hanging out with me, and he's, he's written a paper for a class uh, on the liturgy of social media. What what class is this for, Jonah?
0: Uh, this is for my communications theory, theology, and culture class by yeah. uh, run by Brian Kammerzold here at the Moody Bible Institute.
1: Yes. Uh, and so Professor Campbell is actually going to show up, I think, in a few weeks here and talk to us about a few things. But uh, you wrote this paper for that class on the liturgy of social media. Fascinating idea that you see social media thinking in terms of liturgy. So can we talk a little bit about, uh, about this paper? What do you mean when you say liturgy? Let's talk about what you think liturgy means.
0: Yeah, I, for my paper here, I mainly draw off James K. Smith. He's a philosopher and a professor from Calvin University. Um, and he wrote this book called Desiring the Kingdom, and there's an abridged version called You Are What You Love, which mm-hmm. many Moody students have been reading. Um, but essentially, like, the concept is there in the title, You Are What You Love. What he breaks down is that the, the habits, the liturgies that we do form our minds, form our beings, form how we think, who, who we identify ourselves as to be. So he points from the book many different examples about, let's say you go to a football game, Right. That's a liturgy out of itself. You buy the tickets, mm-hmm. you wear the jersey, you wear your clerical garbs as you go in. You go in, in anticipation, waiting to go into the arena where the grand ceremony of the game shall be done. You mm-hmm. you stand up, you put your hand on your, your heart, and you sing the national anthem. And there's just a great power of identity and of losing yourself in the midst of the, the football game in the field and so you also have you know the game starts and you have your saints out mm-hmm. there playing out there and you have your different your popes which would be the coach <laughs> and you know and so you have and the, the grand ceremony is there where the, the game is played and you have the also the liturgy of the halftime show as well and you got a,
1: chanting for sure because yeah. you're chanting names and chanting, you know, defense or whatever you're asking them or, chur- or encouraging them on to do.
0: Yes, exactly. You have so many different participatory practices. And in a sense, what happens is that it forms you, right? Going to this game, it forms you, especially if it's your team, mm-hmm. to identify with this team, to cheer mm-hmm. for this team. It forms your mind and your identity and how you think. Um, there's also different liturgies, like going to a shopping mall. Right, mm-hmm. you enter in. This is a great, in a sense, cathedral where the the sacrament, the practice that we do, right, is purchasing products. Mm-hmm. You go in there, mm-hmm. and you you see the saints of the different models that are advertised throughout the mall. In a sense, you know what the purpose of seeing the saints, you know, in a cathedral, right, is to stir your mind to see what you would desire, what you want, who you should be. So when you go to a mall, you see all these different you know models and figures around and in a sense it evokes its desire to become like that and what this desire does is it leads to your imagination which leads to your beliefs Mm -hmm. and your actions so in a sense what what Smith is getting at is that liturgies make us well I'll read the quote right here from uh, Desiring the Kingdom page 25 liturgies make us certain kinds of people and what defines us is what we love
1: Mm. so What's fascinating to me, though, is you're recognizing, even as you're writing this paper, that the reality is that for most Christians, they don't even think that they have a liturgy for, say, something like their church, which is usually where these liturgies were originated in some of those in Christian history, and especially in the Catholic Church, even in the Anglican Church, and even mm-hmm. places that do high church right now have very clear, structured liturgies Yes, that are forming toward particular ends mm-hmm. by those means. Yes. Uh, and we talked a little bit about that, that the means and the ends go together, especially when we're talking about technology. And yet, often when we talk about the modern evangelical church, mm-hmm. it doesn't think of itself as liturgical, even mm-hmm. though even though technically they do have a liturgy. They do have a, a pretty consistent pattern of expressing their faith uh, in a church service on a Sunday morning. So what do you uh, let's ask the question. First of all, do you think there's liturgy in churches that we go to? And, and if so, what is that like? And then what is it forming?
0: Yeah, yeah. it's. I have a section within this paper called Evangelicalism's Liturgy Paradox. So essentially when you break down liturgy, you know, to the normal definition by the Oxford Dictionary, it's really just saying the forms of worship, right? Mm-hmm. The forms mm-hmm. of how you come together and do your, your services of worship. But that's what liturgy um, is defined as. And so evangelicalism, you know, is rooted out obviously of the Protestant Reformation and what I believe to be their necessary critiques of, you know, questioning you know, the magisterial manner of what the Catholic Church was and papal infallibility and Marian dogmas. Obviously these things I agree with and you know, I come from that ground but yet despite, you know Evangelicalism or Protestantism, or I would say more evangelicalism, wanting to root their liturgies organically out of Scripture. What I say is that many of their models have been rooted out of uh, hyperpragmatism. Mark Knoll, in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, mm-hmm. says that the evangelical ethos is activistic, populist, pragmatic, and utilitarian. And so what we see today in many of the evangelical churches is that despite wanting their church structures to be organic from Scripture, what they've done is they often adopted many of these practices from what I would call secular houses of worship and developed and adopted many models for how their churches are designed and conducted off of these models, right? It's a very pragmatic and utilitarian Mm -hmm. approach to attract people and their numbers rather than a more organic development from their theology and from the structure. So what I'm arguing here is that oftentimes and how evangelical churches, and I don't want to brandish all of them, but mm-hmm. I point more specifically to churches like Hillsong, Bethel, Elevation, more mm-hmm. of those non-denominational, mm-hmm. maybe more Pentecostal churches that, in the orientation and desi- designing of their liturgy and their houses of worship, it's become hyper-pragmatic and utilitarian mm-hmm. in how they developed them, rather than a theologically-based outworking of what they believe, who Christ is, and how they should worship.
1: And And key to that often is that they were working out of a seeker model, the idea being like we're trying to get as many people into this place, especially people who don't necessarily identify as Mm -hmm. Christians, so they're not uncomfortable. Right. So we built a seeker model that says all these people who don't know Jesus are going to come in. We don't want them to feel weird. So we're going to make this fairly accessible liturgy. And this is crucial for us to clarify. The liturgy is just the regular pattern and habit of the church as it engages on a Sunday morning in this particular context. That's usually a three to four song set. Yeah. A 30 to 45 minute uh, message. And then usually a closing song or maybe two closing songs. And a, you know, have a great week, everybody. And that's the end. The show's over. Mm-hmm. And yet the problem there is and, and what's being argued and what's been argued in a couple of other articles recently is that because we are forming people in these services, we haven't thought uh, in both liturgically or catechistically of how is this forming them? Yeah. what are we creating when we just have people who show up and consume a service yes as though it were a show Yeah. And, and what is it then that we're really offering to them if mm. we're the church and it's simply a show? Are we even a good enough show to keep coming to? Yeah. So then what I've essentially offered you is, did I give you a good enough show to keep you coming on a Sunday morning that's entertaining, which is the critique that's often offered is, well, it wasn't very good or no, that was amazing. What's the criteria for even making that? choice or that critique or that evaluation it's coming out of a sense of well you delivered a product mm-hmm. transactionally I'm saying it looks like this but it's actually more liturgical because I have expectations that next Sunday I'm going to come and there's three or four songs and a 30 to 40 minute message and then another song and we're done yeah that is process then sets my expectations going forward about what should or shouldn't happen or when it's good or not good or when it's right. varying or or not varying and yet it doesn't continuously in its structure reinforce the concepts of the Apostles Creed mm. of dogma of the catechistic way of educating people in the past yeah. so what I wind up with is a very shallow mm. very surface uh, but Let's be honest, very accessible to anybody yeah. who doesn't know anything about what we're doing mm-hmm. uh, version of a Christian liturgy in a church in a modern, non-denominational evangelical setting. So when we say, hey, we don't know if this is forming people deeply, it's not designed to form people deeply.
0: Yeah, yeah. It
1: wasn't put together that way.
0: Mm. Yeah, there's definitely two extremes with how you can approach it, right? You can obviously approach it with, I think what happens in a lot of these churches is the more transmissional model, where it's more of a, I think Smith here in his book points it out, uh, the, the church buys into a cognitist anthropology, adopts a st- stunted pedagogy that is fixated on the mind. Essentially what's that's saying is that a lot of these churches, what they've adopted is a just mere proclamation of doctrine and doctrine and doctrine and more just focusing on the on the mind and the gnosis, right, mm-hmm. in terms of how to communicate and how to form people. And you have the other extreme of the Catholic Church where they've gone so far to the – in the sense of the ritual formation model of communication – where they don't explain the the mode of liturgy what's actually being done Mm -hmm. and you have people buying into that mere participation in liturgy and ritual will save them and so what i think i see is the need is for the integration of the both the return to a both a proper theology of communicating through doctrine and through gnosis but also through embodied worship as well and i think what what is very telling for me and about a lot of churches and practices today is whether what is the theology of the Lord's Supper? Um, what is hmm. do they practice the Lord's Supper? Because the integration of the Lord's Supper, it, it, it's a statement. It's a statement that Christ Himself was in the flesh and incarnational. Mm-hmm, that Christ mm-hmm. had a body. That we have a body. That we are not just mere minds, but that we are embodied people with flesh and bones. Mm-hmm. And that Christ right now stands, you know, seated at the throne. At the right hand of the Father in the flesh, um, mm-hmm. right now, and so I see that the omission of the Lord's Supper in a lot of churches is is telling of a statement of that they bought into a cognitist anthropology, a mere anthropology of just forming the mind instead of forming the whole body. Uh, Luther himself says that every time you wash your face, remember your baptism. And I think what we hmm. need in evangelicalism is a is a le- return to a holistic. Liturgical formation, where we incorporate different parts of our life. Where we take a shower, remember our baptism. Mm-hmm. When we eat, mm-hmm. remember the Lord's Supper. Remember that Christ is in us, and we are in Him. That that is the practice of the Church, and what the mar- the markers of the Church, uh, the two sacraments of the Church is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. These physical practices that form our minds um, to Christ and to His incarnational being.
1: So. Um, <clears throat> This is a, a fascinating conversation about liturgy, and, and, and I'm sure the, the students who are really interested in doctrine and theology are like, okay, what does this have to do with theology of technology yeah. and culture? Yeah. And and so you're you're translating this and trying to work through the idea of okay, then let's talk through how is if if social media is a regular experiential practice that we engage in a habit, how is it forming us and what is it after, and is that good? Yeah. yeah. So, your um, your talk a little bit about that in, in a broader sense, and then we'll dive into a couple of different specifics that you. Why Why do you think it's liturgical to use social media in the way you're defining it?
0: Yeah, definitely because it's a. Uh, I would say in the sense, it's a repetitive practice that we do that forms our mind. You know, liturgy is. In a sense when we apply it and extend it to more of the broader sense of our life and of what what forms us spiritually mentally Mm -hmm. emotionally um social media itself is a liturgy that we engage in it's a we repetitively see the same things and the algorithms takes the same things Mm -hmm. sorry the things that we see and interact with and curates our algorithms with that Um, and we can dive into more about the implications of what that means but when we Span this out to our lifetime, and I'll I'll point paint more of a big picture to realize the scope of how social media is affecting and informing us. So, where I like to start with is about using the statistic that Generation Z spends about on average three hours a day on social media. And so, when you when you span this out to different scales, that's to in a month, it's about 4.5 days out of um, your month, I believe. And then it, across your a year, it's about a month and a half, and across a lifetime, right? The average lifespan is about 79 years in America, um, and when you reduce the time you spend working, sleeping, doing chores, eating, all that, you have about 25 years in your life worth of free time, right? 25 years to spend time, whether it's reading, playing guitar, hanging out with your friends, sure. recreational activities, volunteer, whatever you want to do, it's free time. Gen Z is on track to spend about 11 years of their life on social media, which means that <laughs> out of their 25 years of their free time, nearly 50% of that free time is going to be spent on social media. Now, let's we break this down more to the modern advent of social media and how it's played out. We break down, you know, breaking down the development, developmental stages of human beings. The ages of 12 to 18 is what Eric Erickson calls the a- ages of man as the age of identity formation, True. right? And so what we see in 2013... Invention of Instagram and also the hyper adaptation of of iPhones and social media mm-hmm. in the lives of teenagers um, during this crucial time of identity formation, and we see that they've spent months of their childhood of their teenage years on social media, and so what we see is that social media is is forming their minds greatly. Um, we look at the scale of just how many how many hours they spend of their free time, and you know we can see how the scale is out, right? You know, if you are a Christian, you go to church, it's two hours of church, right? Two hours being formed by your church versus 21 hours in your week mm-hmm. being formed mm-hmm. on social media. Yeah. You know? And so I think we've, we've in a sense lost the scope of how we are formed. We've, we've developed a more of a communist anthropology we've forgotten that how people are formed by the the environments that they're in the things that they consume mm-hmm. um and social media itself is just a totally different ball game um and it forms our how we think in terms of our you know sociological identity who we are socially in terms of our physical practices and how we engage with technology mm-hmm. and the physical aspect of our phones mm-hmm. and and what ideas we form as well um, and we can we can break those all three. Yeah, the and, down if you and want. let me
1: just yeah I do in a minute, but I do want to put this a little bit in historical context. So I spent a bunch of time thinking through online identity formation for adolescents um, when I was getting my master's, whatever, fifteen years ago. Wow, that's a long time ago. Um, <clears throat> but how old were you fifteen years ago, Jonah? Oh,
0: uh, six. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Yeah,
1: I'm old. All right. So, but one of the things that I came across and part of the reason that that this became a bigger deal, kind of like you're talking about, uh, because they weren't on pace, you know, at the beginnings of social media to be in that kind of space. But this coincided with another cultural moment that was happening where, uh, and that probably happened to most of the people listening to this podcast right now, which was that parents in the 80s and 90s kind of got this sense of fear Hmm. that the world was, uh, you know, had serial killers that were now being, you know, we're talking about them on the media on a regular basis. Uh, You're worried about, like, people getting kidnapped. You're worried about people getting killed and accidents and murders. And, you know, you hear all the time uh, to the point that it got to the point where if you listen to the evening news, that was most of what they were talking about. The world is a dangerous place. That's what they were communicating. And so parents had this sense of, like, well, the only way to protect our kid is to probably not let them out of the house as much. So when I was a kid, I was gone out of my house. My parents have no idea where I am for probably six to seven hours a day. Like, no clue. I could have been anywhere. Now my dad could whistle really loud, and usually I would know that was him, and I would come home And because I was usually within two to three miles of my house. <laughs> but realistically, my dad had no idea which direction to look for me if he whistled. You wouldn't know which place I was coming from yeah. because it was this world in which they said, well, it's fine. I mean, let's be clear. It wasn't always great, so don't have this like, oh, I wish we could go back. Uh, I didn't. I got in a car accident. I wasn't wearing a seat belt because we were walking around in the back seat. That wasn't a thing. So I'm not saying let's go back there. There were some really stupid things that we did. But at the same time, those parents got nervous. Because the world was a dangerous place, yeah. and so they started insulating kids, uh, and they started putting, allowing them less and less time outside that wasn't structured. So if you went outside, it was for a club or sports or you know some class or something that you were taking or school. That was that was okay. And then they started having them stay home. Hmm. Right about the time that they really this kicks in and they start staying home, the kids are complaining. The parents are there. We're not sure what to do with them. And the internet's invented. Yeah. And so they hand them video games and the internet to let their kids get out
0: mm. of the
1: house. Wow. So their bodies don't leave. Yeah. But their minds do. And their assumption is the internet will probably be a safer place than my local neighborhood. <laughs> I don't know why they thought that. Like, all of the things in the world that are bad are now accessible to a kid. Yep. Uh, And so I grew up, I was a teenager and and jumped into college right around the time the Internet's kicking in. So there's some level of like, okay, I get it. I worked with a computer before the Internet came along so I knew what a device was before I knew about the Internet. But as the Internet's kicking in, that whole paradigm of keep your kids safe and the Internet is someplace for them to play. So the kids then start growing up into a space of, and this is kind of millennials edge, and then you're starting to get into um Gen Y, Gen Z, that whole thing, that whole group of people was raised in their homes with these devices because that was, quote unquote, the safest way for them to engage. So the kids were going to get out. They, they weren't going to just sit around their parents' house and with nothing to do, so they got out. They just got out in their heads. And they got out in their heads by making profiles. They got out in their heads by playing video games online. They got out in their heads, and they're still doing that. So please don't misunderstand me. This is still happening. Yeah. You don't leave your house because it's still a dangerous world. And if you don't think that that's true, there's been multiple stories lately of kids that actually got picked up by the police who are 10 and 11 who are walking three blocks from their home without a parent. And they're like, this isn't good you're like, are you serious? An 11-year-old can't walk two blocks to the park without the cops picking them up because somebody should be watching them. Right. We're all paranoid about everybody's going to have a problem. Well, you we've created this safety, quote-unquote, environment hmm. that now allows. But it's okay because, you know what, they'll just go on the Internet. The Internet, they'll be on social media. They'll be able to talk to their friends. They'll be able to socialize. This will be better for them. And in the process, nobody really stopped to ask some really hard questions, which is what you're asking in this paper. Wait a second. What is this doing? What is this doing to us? Is this the kind of people we want to be? Is this even a good way to communicate with other people? Is this a good way to be with community? Is this a good way to be with um, uh, even ourselves and our thoughts and reflections? Because ultimately it is forming us. Mm. And that's the part that's the most powerful in this, that the parents now starting to see like, I wonder why they're anxious. I wonder why they're nervous. You want to know why they're anxious and nervous? Because you left them alone with an internet that told them about all of the problems in the world. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to think about all the problems in the world when I was 12, but you do. You know about baby seals. You know about climate change. You know about what happens when you get a straw and it goes in the ocean and how many sea animals it kills. Mm. You know about uh, all the different things that happen because, hey, we took pop cans and those little things that hold them all together and they got dropped in there and then the birds got stuck. And then all of a sudden we're starting to kill off all of the coral and all the – you know about all that. You know about refugees in Afghanistan. You know about – I didn't know about any of that stuff. Mm. I just gave you all this massive amount of information and then i'm like why are you guys nervous and anxious and worried all the time duh because you're wrestling with all of the problems in the world and no one taught you how to edit that information so that you could pick which ones are for you and not for you and then we just handed you these devices and thought oh you'll navigate the most difficult time which as you referred to a time of incredible identity formation between the ages of 12 and 18 it's forming you in multiple different ways. And now I have this device and it's the only way that I know how to relate to the world. To the point that, like we talked about in a couple of previous episodes, we're not even good at phone calls anymore. Yeah. Hey, can I have an actual real conversation with you? No, 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 let's just text. Because I'm not sure I know how to deal with that uncertainty. So... You're presenting in this paper multiple ways that these liturgies of social media that have come about because these people were trying to get out and engage in community are forming us and your first one you're talking about is that it forms us socially mm-hmm. and you're referring to that as a liturgy of platonic idealism. So I have some I want to hear your thoughts on this because I have some some things I want to push into this and see what you think.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I I didn't think about the fact that um I remember watching this TV show called Fresh Off the Boat, and there's this joke. It's about this Asian family from the 80s, and there's this joke about the mom always being like, oh, man, on the nightly news, I watched blah, 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 and this is why you can't go out, kids. And I didn't realize that that is what, during that time, kids started staying at home. And then with that, the advent of social media, I didn't realize that either. So based on your heritage,
1: did that happen to you?
0: I, I would say more or less so. Um, I spent a lot of my developmental years in Japan, Yep. and so Japan is a very safe country. They let four- and five-year-old kids um, take 30-minute train rides to school by themselves. <laughs> yes, so imagine just, that, all
1: of you out there right now.
0: It's just very safe. So I never – I don't think I really dealt with that as much. When I was in America, maybe more, but when I was – my childhood, I, when I was 10, 11, I would just go I'll go to downtown Tokyo all by myself with my friends. <laughs> like My mom was like, yeah, whatever, be safe. Um, I didn't have a phone either. So I just come back, um, but it's just—it's a very safe country, so it's a completely different context. But um, yeah, in my paper, I, I marked down some of the key markers of what social media um, has affected Gen Z and some of the you know sociological statistics uh, for Generation Z that I can point out. I got this from Western Governors University. I'm gonna read some quotes here. It says Generation Z is considered the loneliest generation. Um, also, Gen Z feels more stressed about the issues about world issues than any other generations Mm -hmm. um, beforehand. Only about 45% of Gen Z individuals say their mental health is good or very good. And put this to scale with previous generations, it's 11% less than the closest generation. Mm. And so I think partly what I'm trying to also get at is innocence incarnational, embodied living, right? Mm -hmm. What happens was when kids stay home, right, is they're not engaging the senses when they're growing up. They're not becoming connected with the world with other people as much. Dr. De Rose here, she always talks about, like, true living and true experience means engaging more of the senses. And mm-hmm. just going on social media and scrolling, you're really only engaging two senses, right? Sure. I Make mean, sure you're touching the screen. More or less, what's being engaged Visual is your visual, your perception, your eyes, and then your ears, your hearing, more or less. And so this becomes, a, in a sense, a disembodied formation for what it means to live, what it means mm-hmm. to be a social being. Cause you don't... You know, kids these days don't smell the pheromones of their friends as much when they socialize. It's more about sure. maybe they're just scrolling through social media, smelling whatever is in their room. And in a sense, what happens is that, yeah, these kids, they have embodied, disembodied formation. And what I also try to get at in this section about sociologically speaking is that how they view themselves and their identity has changed. What happens is when kids scroll on social media, right, they see their friends – well, they see their peers, whether it means getting a certain I don't know piece of merchandise clothing, seeing them on a vacation, seeing them in a relationship, whatever it is. I say they're falling in love with the platonic ideal. And so to put this in perspective for anybody else listening, what I'm this feeling of falling in love with the platonic ideal can be seen anytime you go on social media yourself and see, oh, my friend was just engaged. Oh, my friend just had a kid. Oh, my mm-hmm. friend just got this job. Oh, like they look so great in that photo you're starting to develop this platonic ideal of what the good good life looks like. And I pull pull this term, the platonic ideal, from Plato's cave. Um, I don't know how much people here know what Plato's cave is, but in a sense there's a cave where people live in, and then there's an outdoor reality where you live in. And Mm -hmm. so what happens is that you, in a sense, what Plato's cave is trying to get at is that there's these people sitting in a cave, and they're looking at this wall, and they see these shadows of things, Mm -hmm. right? And the sh- they see let's you could put it as a bunny. They see this bunny and say, "Oh, the shadow on the wall there—that that, that's a bunny. That's the real bunny, right?" Mm-hmm. And so what I try to pull from that analogy though is that what Gen Z is—they're is they is they are looking at you know this vision of the good life and they're looking at that and they're pointing at like that's the bunny, right? But really, what what true life is is it's in, it's embodied, incarnational living. And what happens is with these social media algorithms, is just they whatever you like and interact with is what it shows and that curates you know more and more a vision of what you think the good life is Mm -hmm. and so the main argument i try to get into this section of my paper is that gen z is coming to fall in love with the life of the platonic ideal than jesus christ the savior Hmm. that gen z is forming their minds to fall in love with this platonic ideal of what the good life is um, rather than falling in love with the gospel of our lord falling in love with who christ is it's 21 hours a week they're being formed on social media versus Mm -hmm. two hours in church. You know, we've forgotten how much the scale of what this does to their formation. And I like to point out from the social dilemma, the curators and the creators of Facebook's content um, algorithm systems, what do they do with their kids? They don't let their kids use social media at all. Mm-hmm. They just are like, no, nope, you're not, you're not touching social media until you're 18, because they understand what it does to your psychology. They know, they know the psychological effects and the formation it has in their identity, for what it does for their kids. And so, if they're treating it with is that much skepticism. I, I think that speaks greatly with what probably what we should do in terms of if they understand it apart from a theological understanding of liturgy formation if they understand it merely from psychology and from how they've curated these algorithms and what they know it does I think that should make sure that we have great skepticism with how our children utilize social media.
1: Yeah and 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 so my <clears throat> you're using the word Platonic ideal in question mark or in quotation marks and I actually think You're in referring to a Platonic ideal. I mean, a Platonic ideal, I, you know, is that idea of the cave. Mm -hmm. We're in the cave. We see the We see the shadow. We know that something exists. And the ideal for Plato was the idea that there is a perfect tree somewhere that every tree wants to be. Yeah. And that's really what we're getting at. The one thing that I think is and you're hinting at this here is that for Plato, the ideal actually existed. Hmm. It was something true and beautiful and good, and you were trying to move toward it right. so that in moving toward it, you'd move toward something true and beautiful and good. The problem that I have with social media is that it's probably more like the platonic illusion than it is the platonic ideal. Mm, yeah. It is the shadow. It is the thing that actually, if you turned around and saw what it was, it's not actually a, a sure. bunny. It's you know some weird little rat thing, and you're like, oh, that wasn't as good as I thought it was. Because the reality is, and, and that's what's happening, is we are being formed by illusion. Yeah. We are being formed by someone, and this is key. Uh, and this is a really important concept, and, and they said this, and I, and I love that they said this on The Social Dilemma. And if you haven't watched it, go go watch it on Netflix. Fantastic discussion. But they, they've said, and they've been saying in new media for a while, that uh, if you're not paying for it, then you're the product. Yep. That they're selling. Yeah. They're selling you. So they have to find ways to keep you hooked into this space so that they can keep selling you. And what's driving that conversation is ultimately the transactional nature of the economy. You're a capitalist and you're trying to basically make money. You now have a captive audience who's willing to do that with you. Yeah. So the algorithms are helping me stay in touch with my audience. But I'm gonna to have to keep maintaining this illusion that's never really gonna to get to, and that's that the only thing that I that I probably just slightly nuance in your paper sure. for me at least is. It's never going to get to the real ideal. Mm-hmm. Because if we were looking at the Platonic ideal, we could say, what is the perfect man? Well, the perfect mm-hmm. man would be Jesus, someone true and beautiful and good. Right. And the things that he did, so pursuing him would be great. We're not pursuing an ideal. We're pursuing an illusion. Yeah, we're pursuing yeah. a thing that if we ever got our hands on it, would disappear. It's smoke. Yeah, It's mirrors. It's yeah. not actually real. So for me, but I, but I completely agree with where you're going with this, which is if we keep doing this, we are literally just pursuing an a shadow that is ultimately for us to escape from what is really happening in the real world, in our real lives, as we're trying to say, what do I want to be and what do I want to do? And that thing on social media, I'm never going to get there. Yeah. I'm never going to get there because there's no shot that I'm ever gonna look like anybody on a Kardashians episode. Mm -hmm. There's no shot that I'm gonna look like the best thing that happened on Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter today. That's just not gonna happen. No matter what I do, no matter how many hours I work, and no matter how many workouts I put in, no matter how many books I read, I'm not gonna be that because the truth is those people aren't either. They're not. Yeah. They're curating your best moments. You're seeing one or two best moments from each person and conceiving that everybody out there is doing better, having more fun, uh, living a better life than I am. Yeah. Which is an illusion. Yeah. It's not grounded in reality because if I've hung out with a bunch of those people. I've seen them. I've been with them on a daily basis. Guess what? The regular day is pretty boring, just <laughs> like yours. And that boring day that is the regular practice of their daily life is what oftentimes makes possible those brilliant moments where they say something that we remember or those amazing uh, ways that they got in shape or or did whatever they did to achieve that goal that day. Oh, they won the Olympics or won a championship. Great. That was achieved a bunch of days doing all the stuff that was never going to go on social media. But that's not what I'm going to put on there. Mm. I'm going to put on there what reinforces the illusion of what we should keep becoming, which goes back then to some of the physical components Yeah, of <clears throat> social media is liturgy and you're calling it the liturgy of bowing to the black mirror, mm-hmm. uh, which by the way, interesting black mirror reference. So uh, talk about that, that physical uh, liturgy that social media is creating both in how we handle social media and then also how we think of ourselves in that space.
0: Yeah. I think I like to point back down to I think using Pavlov's dog as an analogy for how we interact with social media, right? So what Pavlov's dog was getting at was how I think there's two different modes of how we can react. But one study he was showing was how dogs reacted to the ding of a bell, right? Mm -hmm. So what he started doing was he started serving this dog food after every time he would uh, bring this bell. So he would bring this bell and he would serve food, right? And so what happened with the dog eventually is that when he would – when he would hear the bell, he would involunt- the dog would involuntarily start salivating. Yep. Right? And so what's happened to our brains is that we've become conditioned, right? Yep. Every time we hear this yep. ding, yep. we start salivating with anticipation for this dopamine, right? And I'll read a couple quotes from here um, from the vice president, the former vice president of user growth at Facebook. So they said, The short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created are destroying how society works. Mm-hmm. Goes on to later say, The very same neural circuitry used by slot machines and cocaine are used to keep us using their products, Facebook, as much as possible, right? So what's happened is that Gen Z, or people who have become addicted to social media, right, have started creating this this neurological feedback loop, right, where whenever the notification comes or whether it's boredom or awkwardness or Mm -hmm. just trying to go to bed or whatever routines you have for pulling out your phone looking at social media it's in a sense made you a slave, right? Your brain's become conditioned sure. to anticipate this, to to love the little ding the little dopamine hits that come from getting your likes, from getting people commenting and promoting your stuff or saying, Oh man, you look great in that photo or congratulations, right? And what this happens, right? For example, in circumstances of standing in line or being in a train or on airplane or on a bus, whatever is that during these opportunities, right, to connect with people and to exercise your social skills, what has happened um, is that people will now turn through their phones, right? They start bowing down to the, the, the neurological circuitry that happens in their brains with the dopamine that they get with every time they go on social media instead of engaging with the physical world, right? Instead of standing up and interacting with people, right? Connecting with people, getting to know who they are, Mm -hmm. exercising your social skills. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we see that this generation, Generation Z, is probably one of the most socially awkward generations that has the highest levels of uh, social anxiety, there's many accusations about articles written from, you know, the Harvard Business Review about how Gen Z uh, doesn't work with, um, work well when it comes to work ethic and workplace ethic, mm-hmm. um, etiquettes and all that. And so, what happens is that. You know, Gen Z has developed this neurochemical feedback loop of bowing down to the black mirror rather than sitting up to encounter the physical world. It's, in a sense, become abstracted from an embodied life, an embodied uh, living and interacting with other people. We've become... We, we resort to digital escapism rather than encountering and, encountering and living in the physical world with other people.
1: So, so to use a term that we, we've talked about more recently in this podcast and a couple of previous episodes, um, we talked about uh, instrumentalism, that mm-hmm. it's a device that I use, that I'm in control right. on one side of the spectrum, and technological determinism on the other end, which mm-hmm. is, hey, the device made me. Your language seems to be pointing to we- choose digital escapism yes and then once we're in that space we then turn around and say okay but now i've entered the space and i'm active in the space but now it's giving me these self fulfilling so to speak Mm -hmm. um, habits that make me keep wanting to do it yes so it's both in some sense Uh, the instrumental I made choices on how I was going to engage with my devices sometimes without being aware of what they were doing which is what the Facebook executive is admitting but also at some point I am now engaged in a pattern and a habit which I do without now thinking because I made the choice at the beginning now I'm going to keep doing it without thinking about it so in that sense the technological determinism point kicks in of like it's making me quote unquote do things that doesn't mean that you can't make different choices it means that now you're in a rut you are stuck in a habit that's going to continually reinforce it because the dopamine's there. Mm-hmm. So um, it's also for you, in this, in this sense, a, a liturgy not just of the physical body but also of the mind because that dopamine that's yes. kicking in is a chemical that we actually experience physically. Yes. But it's also doing things to our, our, our minds in terms of how we're engaging. Uh, in term, and you're calling it the liturgy of confirmation bias. So talk about that, the ideological liturgy of confirmation bias.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can see many different studies about this. Um, there was a Wall Street Journal article. It was very fascinating. It, I don't know how they developed this, but it was really cool. Um, essentially, what they did is they developed two feeds. They had two feeds side by side of real posts, actually from Facebook, right? So it was from the feeds of one who was you know, a very ardent Democrat or liberal, and one who was a very ardent Republican or conservative. And so what, these, what this article did, it's not up there I don't think anymore, um, but what it did is that it showed the two different feeds, right, talking about the same topic. So whether it was abortion, Black Lives Matter, all these different political issues, Donald Trump and the election, right, and it broke it down. And it showed the polarizing nature that social media has in terms of what these algorithms do is that they look at your content. What do you engage with the most? What these what kind of likes do you get? Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been studies that re- uh, actually Wall Street Journal released another series called the Facebook Files. You can find it. It's still up there. And one of the articles revealed how... Facebook, what it specifically does on purpose is that it shows you more enraging content, more extreme Mm -hmm. content, Mm -hmm. because extreme content gets more attention. And more attention means more time to look at ads. Mm -hmm. And that means more potential purchases Mm -hmm. for the advertisers, right? So, Facebook, in order to incentivize and monetize their platform even more, would show more and more extreme content. And so, what I try to get at here is that ideologically speaking, we want to engage with things that we agree with. It's comfortable. we want to engage and see the things that help us reaffirm our beliefs, that show that we are right. You know, the humility of knowing that you're wrong. It's not a great feeling, and mm-hmm. we're emotionally human beings and so what happens is that it's this liturgy of confirmation bias right you look at certain content the algorithm analyzes it and it shows you the same content and usually even more extreme right and this is confirmation bias right confirmation bias in psychology is the notion or the idea that you are more likely to look at and believe content that you already Mm -hmm. agree with and want to engage with that content even more so what happens is that you know Generation Z or people who that strongly interact with social media rather than being educated in terms of how to debate and critically think is more – what happens more – tends to happen more often is that they develop these plausibility structures of what's even real, right? Plausibility structures meaning what kind of beliefs is even plausible in my realm of reality? Mm-hmm. And social media forms these plausibility structures by showing you the content that you want to agree with. Um, and, you know you, – Facebook comment centers, comment sections are notorious for people, which is a polarizing positions, totally forgetting their humanity and just hacking at it, being like, how can this other person of this belief even exist? Sure. Sure. And and
1: in the process, the very idea of I need to be in community with other people now becomes more and more divisive. Yes. And, and my capacity to understand and relate to people with different perspectives uh, continues to diminish. To the point that I'm actually usually, because I'm scared of the uncertainty and I don't know what's going on in the world, I will run to the group of people who confirm my bias because yep. I just want to feel safe. Yep. I want to feel like it's okay. I want to feel like the world's not falling apart. So uh, I'm, I'm, I am I'm need to spend some time and we need to spend yes. some time thinking through, so then what do we do? Right. Okay, right. so we, we now say, hey, listen, this is probably not forming us in some ways that we're not we're not good with so what are our alternatives what 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 should we be thinking and you've got some suggestions here in terms of uh, a liturgy uh, especially thinking theol- theologically about how christ and the incarnation forms us
0: yeah well I'll, I'll first start with my other ideological um section about social media's liturgy of abstraction right so what I, the point i get there it's pretty pretty simple and pretty under easy to understand right so when you go on Twitter, the character limit is 280 characters, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And oftentimes what you see is just very polemical statements, really big topics that will require tons of nuance, right, are mm-hmm. shortened down to these little statements that are very provocative mm-hmm. and try to simplify very these very complex topics, right? And what also happens on social media feeds as well is these, you know, these, the Now This videos are notorious for trying to boil down these complex political topics sure, into sure. these two-minute, one-minute, 30-second videos, Right. So what I say this is happening is that it's, in a sense, what postmodernism is, the classical definition, the incredulity towards metanarratives. What I mean by this is that Gen Z is not – they're not engaging with long-form sources. The amount of uh, books that are being read, like these long books that explore topics from Mm -hmm. start to finish with context, Mm -hmm. is diminishing extremely, right? And so our generation isn't being taught how to think long-term, how to think in terms of a metanarrative. And so, what I call to us to, to live out is that what we don't need, you know, in this generation, is we don't need an abstracted metaver- metaverse. We need an embodied meta narrative. Okay. And so, what I mean by that is we need the embodied life of Christ to transform our minds and to form us, right? Yeah. We need the embodied we need an embodied meta narrative. That means we need a meta narrative, a story, a grand arcing story about our life and our purpose that is not just believed but also lived, sure. embodied. And what I call to this is an embodied worship, right? Practices in our church like kneeling, confessing together, singing as one voice, putting the emphasis on the voices as mm-hmm, one, mm-hmm. Pa- partaking of the Eucharist, remembering your baptism, remembering feasting on the Lord when you eat and when you sure. drink. Um, so I what I think e- the evangelical church needs is, number one, a strong awareness of social media and how it forms you. Neil Postman, in his book, The Musings Ourselves to Death, mm-hmm. talks about what the solution is. To our society that's becoming increasingly wanting to be entertained and not being informed is awareness that's the first step and so that's what I call for our step for evangelicalism is awareness of social media and how it forms us Mm -hmm. that's the first step we need and number two what we need is embodied worship we need liturgical practices back in our church Mm -hmm. that will form us holistically we need those practices back in our church whether that means you know, reviving the theology of the Lord's Supper, and reinstituting that into our churches, remembering the importance of our baptism, just bringing in these different practices within mm-hmm. our church, observing from historical liturgical practices. Um, what I have within this class is we do a creative project. And my creative project for this class was actually I designed a liturgy, a liturgy to be done with uh, your fa- with your family who you live with every morning. Interesting. Um where, in a sense, what the liturgy, liturgical the theology tries to frame is that we love because He first loved us, mm-hmm. and so we have a leader, and everybody calls, responds, right, and you practice that together in this liturgy, and you do it in person. You sing a song, and at the end, what you do is you, you I have it, so that you drink a cup of whatever your morning drink is, mm-hmm. and so that you remind that your your body is reminded. That you are refreshed through liturgies, that you mm. refreshed through coming to cut together in prayer, that you were refreshed and made ready and made new through coming together and worshiping. So yeah, that's my. Those are my two calls. Yeah,
1: and 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 the the first call in terms of the meta narrative is kind of what we were we referred to in an earlier episode, the 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 tale of two stories. We did talk about the meta narrative of redemption history and how that shapes and informs our capacity to engage with technology. Yeah. So that is. Is if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to that one again because we talked about the difference between the meta narrative that is the evolution of humans to be up and to the right and everything to get better, versus the redemption history narrative, which looks at humans uh, in light of the story of God. So, let's get practical for a second.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, as we're wrapping up here. Great, you have all these huge thoughts. You've got all this big stuff that you're thinking ideologically and sociologically and liturgically and theologically. How did this change how you interacted with social media?
0: Yeah. So as I was writing this paper, I, in a sense, it was not just, I didn't do it intentionally per se, but I spent about, I mean, it's been about two months, I would say, two, three months of just completely, pretty much cutting myself off Mm -hmm. from, I think it was Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, and YouTube. So about two months of that. I would say take a fast from all your social media and not just your social media, but also social, in a sense, YouTube, I would say, is a form of social media and the algorithm and its short form videos, I think you can, I also put that into how formation is with the amount of time that kids spend on YouTube as well. So I would say spend, I would challenge a month, at least one month um, or I would say even two months because it says that they say about 90 days it takes to get out of a habit. So I would say like Try to spend like ninety days, like, um, like three months without social media, and or and YouTube. See how that your how your mind and your soul is formed. Observe the feelings that you have, and understand, and that will re- rewire your thinking about how social media interacts with your life and how mm-hmm. that forms you. I would say do that, and I think it'll reset your relationship with social media.
1: And so then, what? Uh, because you're you're losing something. You're fasting. Mm-hmm. What are you putting back in its place?
0: Oh, definitely just putting back into your life, like, liturgical practices in your life, spending time in the Word, spending time reading books, engaging in metanarrative forms, which are I would say books are just the best way to internalize information in that form. Spend time with people uh, in embodied, you know, community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Go to church and be engaged in the practice of the church, whether it means, like, going on Sunday morning, going to your community, your small groups during the week. Just focus on living an embodied life. Don't focus on how can I use this free time. If you spend three hours a day, that's 21 hours in your week. Fill that 21 hours in your week with spending time with people or doing things you love, whether it's taking walks or reading books. Mm -hmm. Do things that are manifesting yourself in the physical world, living out the incarnational life that Christ lived.
1: Like sitting and having a conversation about the liturgy of social media yes, exactly. on a podcast. Yes. 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 Let's let's have this good conversation in this cafe. Well, that's about all the time we have today. Uh, thank you for stopping by, Jonah. I yep. really appreciate the conversation. And if you have questions for us, you can email me at profpedit at gmail.com. That's P-R-O-F-P-E-T-T-I-T-T at gmail.com. Love to hear your questions and engage with you, uh, especially if you've got questions about some of the things that we've been talking about or you've been wrestling with or trying to uh, understand what do I do about this or how do we, how do we continue and engage it. And if the, we can get some of those questions in, we can actually start hosting some of those questions on the show and having different people in to talk about them. So thank you so much for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful day. Take care.